I Was Here was created with generous financial support from the Accessibility Project at the G. Raymond Chang School of Continuing Education, Ryerson University. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the storytellers and are in no way endorsed by or representative of the G. Raymond Chang School of Continuing Education. You know, it's just the sun shining, it's the end, kind of the end of summer, and people are having a great time, and the midway is packed, and you're just, you're clicking on all cylinders. There's a certain amount of excitement to all of that. Well, not a certain amount, there's a lot of excitement to all of that. You know, I guess that's the reason why I sort of stuck around this business, because I still get excited when that happens. You are listening to I Was Here, a podcast featuring older adults who have interesting stories about, or long histories with, spaces and places in Toronto. I am your host, Catherine Dunphy. In this episode, I am talking to... Okay, I'm uh, Greg Scooter Korak. I'm the Vice President with North American Midway Entertainment. I am now 58 years old. And I started on July 7th, 1977 at the Calgary Exhibition and Stampede in our ticket office. Scooter is living the dream. Everybody's dream. In 1977, when he was 17, he ended up working for Patty Conklin, the man who ran the Midway at the Canadian National Exhibition. The X. The biggest and the best fair in the whole country. Home to the Flyer. The Wild Mouse. Tilt-a-Whirl. Whack-a-mole, the food building, sideshows, and rock and roll concerts that became music legend. If you lived in Toronto, you had to be there. If you lived in Toronto, or even if you didn't, you were there. It was how you said goodbye to summer. Scooter is a vice president with North American Midway Entertainment, so he's still working at the X. You know, the 35 million Canadians will go to fairs this year. I think we need to start right there with that fact. Okay. As soon as they have us on. That is a ha- You know what? I didn't know that. That 35 million is all of us. It's every Canadian. That's everybody. Every Canadian's going to go to a fair from April until the end of October. 35 million people. 35 will- million people, which means some people go to the fair often. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's become really a part of our culture here in Canada. You know, it's really, and it's dated back to some fairs are 250 years old. There's one in the Hans County Fair in Nova Scotia, I think now is 252 years old. It's incredible. Yeah, so it's long before they even thought about putting Canada together that some of these people have been putting together fairs. And, you know, I guess the Canadian National Exhibition started in 1879. That it did. So it's a real part of... Not only Canada, but I think of really the development of Toronto. Absolutely. And and the thing about what you're talking about, the 35, let's just go back for a second, the 35 million people in going, will go to the fair this year. Absolutely. Between April and October. Yep. Which means that we all go to the fairs. Why? Well, I think that it's part of, I think it's part of the tradition of Canada and also there's been an increase in fares, you know, over the last five years that we've seen fare attendance grow by 11%, which is a little bit over 2% every year. And I think why that is, is, is that 
especially millennials who are really engaged in fairs, you know, that would participate in it, you know, they're getting a lot of their source of their entertainment from their phones and from their computers. So fairs are offering a real life experience and not only a real life experience, but a social real life experience. You know, that's a real roller coaster and that's a real cow and that's a real piece of pizza. And that's really the Arcals up there singing on stage. And in you were saying that you think that the CNE has really been a huge contribution to who, what Toronto is. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, there's, if you were to go to the CNE archives, they list a number of innovations that's happened with Inside Canada where they've, you know, provided the very first, like the very first typewriter was introduced at the Canadian National Exhibition and the very first black and white television. And I believe the very first color television and the very first Etzel that ever was ever shown in Canada was at the automotive building. So, you know, Canada or the Canadian National Exhibition was really a place of firsts and places where you could go see new techniques, new technology and new ideas. And I always like the CNE because it's kind of a place where the ordinary human can celebrate life. You know, they've always had those great competitions, you know, horticulture competitions and quilting competitions. And that's something where a normal human could come down and celebrate who they were of being a Canadian. It's been a unique place and the Canadian National Exhibition still pro provides that opportunity still to this very day. They still have the best apple pie contest. Uh, I don't know if they have that or not, but they, they did. They, yeah, well, they did. They hold a lot of competitions still. And it's a way that, you know, us as Canadians can go out and show the fabric of our culture. And I think that's what's making fairs kind of relevant. I think the five reasons why people come to fair today is, is really free entertainment, food, and then the story around food. It would be the midway, the social experience, and then agriculture learning. Okay, speaking of Midway, that's where you come in. Because when you were a raw and callow youth from Calgary, or north of, I think, um, in 1977, you joined the Conklin Shows. Tell us about that part and how you got to the CNE. Well, I got, I got out of high school when I was seven. I graduated from high school when I was 17 years old, and I was looking for some summer employment. And I was actually enrolled in Ryerson uh, that year to take a stage management course. And so I thought I'd go down to the Calgary Stampede to see if I get myself a job, and uh, which I did. And I thought I was working for the Calgary Stampede. And when I got dispatched the next day, I'm actually working for the Carnival. And uh, so I worked the Calgary Stampede. I really enjoyed it. And one of the ladies, her name was Karen Croft. Uh, she asked me if I wanted to come up to Edmonton with them. So I had some relatives in Edmonton. So I went and worked K-Days in Edmonton. And uh, then she asked me during the Edmonton K-Days exhibition if I wanted to come to Toronto with them, which worked out pretty good. K-Days being Klondike Days? Being Klondike Days. We call it K-Days now. Been rebranded to that. And uh, I said, yeah, well, I'm going that way. So I'd like to... And then they, it was pretty good work at that time. So anyways, uh, one of the concession managers, he came in and he says, well, I hear there's somebody who worked on or from a farm. And I said, yeah, that's me. He says, do you know how to drive a truck? And I said, of course I do. And so he took me around the block two or three times to make sure I was capable of driving the truck. And uh, lo and behold, the day after we tear down our show in Edmonton, there's a truck with this huge 28-foot game trailer behind it. So somehow, some way, I made it from Edmonton to Regina, and now I've now been labeled as a truck driver. And I played the exhibition, which was called Buffalo Days at that time, uh, in Regina, and then we headed off to Toronto, and I headed off in my truck. 
and landed on uh, early one morning, maybe around 5.30 in the morning, I pulled down the 400 onto the 427, pulled into the Canadian National Exhibition Grounds and parked underneath the Gardner Expressway. And that was the very first time I ever set foot on the Canadian National Exhibition Grounds. Um, my uncle lived in Rosedale at that time, and I was going to go and stay with him. Uh, I actually lived in Summerhill, sorry. And But, of course, he was at work, so I had a day to kill, and I walked up to the corner of Queen and Dufferin, and I went to the McDonald's and a little variety store there and bought myself a map and figured out how to wait, make my way around Toronto. I got on the streetcar, and I asked the uh, driver, I said, when we get to Spadna, could you let me know when, we're, uh, when I arrive? And so he, pulling his, his red rocket down Queen Street or down King Street, and uh, he gets up to Spadina and yells out, Spadna! And I get off and I go and tour, and then I ended up staying with my uncle. And later on did I find out the actual name of the street was Spadina, <laughs> which was sort of funny. And then the next day I appeared at the Canadian National Exhibition Grounds for my very first time. You know, and this was... At that time, the Canadian National Exhibition was highly regarded as one of the best exhibitions in the world. You know, they were constantly, you know, drawing 2.73 million people in that neighborhood range. It was a huge exhibition. And to me, a kind of a Calgary-type guy, you know, used to the Calgary Stampede, but the Canadian National Exhibition was a different thing. You know, it had this international reputation and drawing so many people and down on the lakeshore and, and all these fabulous buildings. And there was permanent structures that were built just for the Canadian National Exhibition, like the Flyer Roller Coaster and the Jumbo Jet Coaster and the Wildcat Roller Coaster and games built in permanent houses. It, it, was, it was a phenomenal place to be. So you you arrived basically in when the CNE was at its peak. This was this was the place to be. Everybody people were coming from definitely all over Toronto, definitely all over the province, definitely all over the country to see this our fair. It was the Canadian fair. Absolutely. It was it was everything, you know, it was a Canadian, it was national and it was a great exhibition. You know, it was all those things wrapped up into one thing. And I guess that if you were to ask, you know, if you were to ask people who have been involved with the CNE, I would say that they would say the late 80s or late 70s were probably the heyday of the Canadian National Exhibition. It's changed today. I'm going to say that the CNE is almost every bit as good, if not better than that time period. It's just things have evolved so much over time. And people may have changed a little bit, but let's go back to you arriving there and looking around with your jaw dropping as you're talking. You're you're talking about the permanent buildings. They're they're beautiful. They're old. You're talking about rides that were famous. Those those rides that that you mentioned, the flyer. They were everybody wanted to be on the flyer. The wild mouse, that sort of thing. Everybody wanted to be on them. Do you remember about those? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I can tell you that uh, Patty Conklin, the, the gentleman that developed Conklin shows in 1927 in, Van in Vancouver, <clears throat> he was a real showman. And, you know, he scoured the, the world for the best rides. And he would never give up. And he finding the best attractions to bring to one of the best exhibitions in the world. You know, in the 1950s, he uh, developed a flyer roller coaster, which was a rickety old wooden roller coaster in every sense of the word. And people would line up for hours to get onto this roller coaster. It was just one of those great thrill sensations. 
And then he found uh, in the 50s, there was manufacturers out of Germany that had premiered this Wildmost roller coaster in, uh, I believe, in Oktoberfest. And he ended up buying two or three of them, and he brought them to the CNE to overwhelming support and, you know, thrills that he was providing with the Wildmost roller coaster. You know, those were really great rides. And he had built himself a jumbo jet roller coaster, which was a steel roller coaster down at the south end of the Midway, which was a which was a real modern steel roller coaster at his time in every sense of the word. So, you know, he was dedicated to, you know, bring some of the world's best attractions to the Canadian National Exhibition. He was a real showman and he knew he knew what his paying customer was looking for. And to me, I'm going to tell you, to be part of all of that, to be part of this great tradition, you know, just walk down Princess Boulevard and there would be a hundred rides sitting there, you know, and some of these permanent roller coasters. And here I am, a 17-year-old kid from Calgary, Alberta, and, you know, I'm part of this whole thing. It was really, I guess I didn't realize it then, and I certainly do realize it now, that I was part of this really big thing that was going on. It was a really exciting time period. For sure. And I don't, perhaps, I'm sure most people didn't realize, and I didn't until I looked it up, that, for instance, the Tilt-A-Whirl was in 1926. That was even before the Conklin Shows arrived in 1937. That's when the Conklin Shows joined forces with uh, the CNE, right? Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you, when Patty Conklin first started off in 1923, kind of, and formed a company, Conklin & Garrett, in 1927 in Vancouver, you know, that a midway really looked like maybe three or four rides. He would have a -a tilt-a-whirl, and there would be a Ferris wheel, and maybe a whip ride. And then the rest of the fairgrounds would be surrounded with sideshows and games. You know, that was a really big part of the way that a midway sort of looked. Tell me about the games, some of the well-known ones. Well, I, I guess how gaming really kind of started in Canada, and especially also at the Canadian National Exhibition, is that in 1919, the federal government was really supporting Canadian agricultural events, and they decided at that point that that they were going to support them less with their funding and to replace that funding that at agricultural fairs in Canada that you could gamble. So now in your constituency, wherever you were, including in Toronto, there probably was only two places where you could gamble at that point. One would be at your local racetrack and the second place would be during your local fair. So, of course, we kind of know everybody in Canada's appetite for gambling and especially when it came only once a year, maybe if for, to the Canadian National Exhibition for 20 days, the gambling was a very, very substantial part of our, of our gaming presentation. And then somewhere along the line, the whole idea of playing a fun game for a teddy bear really took off. And I've never been able to pinpoint that, how that started. And maybe that's a Coney Island type idea. Maybe that all came out of there, but I've never been able to pinpoint how the teddy bear actually played into, you know, the Canadian Midway landscape or the Canadian National Exhibition landscape. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how that happened, but it did, and so that became a staple of of our Midways was gaming, and I I think always gaming ever since I've been here has been three parts. Number one has been the operator making it sort of entertaining for what you're doing. Number two is the game in which you're playing. And number third part would be the stuffed animal that you're going to win for doing that. 
And so I guess one of our most popular games at the CNE ever has been the birthday game, which is a 14-sided block. And then you would bet on a month or Christmas and New Year's, and you put down your 50 cents. And then a customer would throw the block into the bin. And if it lands in June, if you have, have your money on June, then you would win yourself a stuffed animal. And I, I don't know that I've met a Torontonian that hasn't played the birthday game. Everybody knows the birthday game. And we gave out some great prizes over the years. You know, there was a Bavarian bear in the 80s that lasted for seven, eight years. And then, of course, there was the rage of the Smurfs, which lasted a long, long time. And, you know, we've had some other great pieces of merchandise over the year. Recently, you know, we've been giving away the Pokemons, and that lasted for three or four years. And that was an extremely popular item. You know, I think that there's swings in the items, so... It's still three parts. It's kind of the operator that's making it fun, the game, which is a fun game, and then the reward for when you actually win. But we can't let this stop without mentioning Whack-A-Mole, which has become part of our lexicon. That game has to have started with you guys, right? The Whack-A-Mole? Well, there's a guy out of Florida, and his name is Bob Cassad. In the early 70s, he came up with the idea of... Uh, of developing a space race. And it was a water game, I think, to begin with, where you would squeeze a water pistol and it would shoot at a target. And then the space racers would go up to the top of the water gun. It's sort of been in and around that story. And he had some local success with that. And then in the in and around the time that I started with them, that he started booking with Conklin Shows. And he was the developer of the Whack-A-Mole. He was the guy that came up with this idea and what an idea it was. And he is a shop in Daytona, Florida, and he still produces whack-a-moles like crazy and water guns. And he's perfected the art, and he sells them all throughout the entire world, these things. And he just started with a little garage operation in, in Florida, and he turned it into this multinational company. It's, it's a really a great success story. And what Bob Casada did for us was, what he did for us and for him is, is that because we had such enormous volumes of people that he would use Conklin shows as his testing ground. He would book equipment with us so we could bring it to the Canadian National Exhibition and test it, go back and refine it based on the players and the amount of winners and the funness of uh, the, the, the excitement of the game. And then the second year, he could go perfect it, bring it back out, make sure it's a proven winner. Then he could take it to international markets. So, you know, that's a really great success story. That's a really great success so, story with Inside Conklin Can shows. we say the Whack-A-Mole was sort of bred in Toronto? It would have been part of its, it would have been part of its breeding for sure, because Casada was mainly in, on our Canadian route that traveled with us. That's where he did most of our testing. So, you know, Toronto would have been one of the very first places that the Whack-A-Mole ever appeared on the international scene. And this, this water thing, was that at the exhibition as well? Absolutely. Water guns? Yeah. Yeah, that water was guns. all his idea. And, you know, those all premiered on Conklin Show's Midways that came to the Canadian National Exhibition. And I got to tell you, the Canadian National Exhibition turned out to be an incredibly good testing ground for him. You know, and then he proved those games. And then while he was doing it, guess what? He perfected them so well. He did very, very well. The milk bottles. Yeah. They're impossible to knock over. The tornado came through the fairgrounds. The only thing left standing was the milk bottles. That You mean Hurricane Hazel? Mm. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I listen. <laughs> Talk to me about the milk bottles. Every, I think every Torontonian have tried and failed to knock over those milk bottles. 
So the way that our gaming philosophy has always worked is, is that the harder the game, the bigger stuffed animal that you're going to get. So one thing I have to say about the Conklin Shows people is, is that we've always presented games that were that you're always able to win at. There are some that are just a lot more difficult to win at, and there are some that are easier to win at. So the easier games, the smaller stuffed animal you're going to win. The bigger, the harder ones is the milk bottles, and that would then if you do win that, then you get yourself a bigger stuffed animal. So, and I'm going to say the milk bottles. That's a tougher game. I I, I don't think I can do that. Is it the toughest one? Uh, I'm going to think that or. The ring tosses can be tr pretty tough, where you're throwing the rings on top of the Coke bottles. Yes. It looks reasonably easy, but that's a pretty hard thing to do. And yet, they're among the oldest, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I guess the punk rack is up there, too. You know, the one where you throw the baseball at the little furry punks? Yeah, that's out there. That's been around for a long, long time. You know, and balloon dart games have been around for a long time, too. But that, you know, those were really made for a family experience where... You know, all you had to do is just break a balloon, and it was great for little kids that they could win themselves a toy. Can you reveal now, for our listeners, what was the win-to-lose rate on those games? Well, I think the Conklin shows, well, ever since I've been involved, is that we've always maintained a 30% stock average. So 30%? Yeah, so for every dollar that's come in, we're giving 30% back out in merchandise. And, you know, that's always been our formula. You know, that keeps customers returning and gives them everybody a, a really good shot at winning some prize and keeps them coming back. And the harder the game, the bigger the prize, which is why we have seven-foot teddy bears going out, out the door, out the gates, out the princess gates. Absolutely. Well, you know, we'll go recently to last year that we had, uh, we had I think it was 21 tractor trailers full of stuffed animals that we just gave out as as prizes last year at the Canadian National Exhibition. So and we've we've always treated gaming as a very important part of our business. And guess what? If the customer's going to come down and play, we're going to make sure that there's a very good chance that they're going to get some reward out of all of this. And back to the CNE, because I think the, the, the gaming is, is a huge part of it, because I, I know that if I say CNE, I think people have a picture in their minds of sort of somebody walking by, some happy person walking by with a six-foot pink bear and, you know, happy, the, usually the dad carrying it and the kids trailing afterwards. It's definitely an iconic Canadian image and uh, all part of the uh, and all part of the feel of the exhibition. But at the same time, what was happening at the CNE, I think, in the 70s, when you were there in the 80s, was that it also became the center for entertainment. Rock and roll came to the CNE. Oh, that Did that help or hurt you guys? And tell me about that. That really helped us. You know, I guess that was one of the excitements of coming to the Canadian National Exhibition in 1977. You know, was, there was this huge grandstand there, you know, where the Blue Jays and the Argonauts played football. And then at nighttime, the scene would roll out this massive stage and they would put on these international huge, huge rock and roll shows. You know, some of them were drawing seventy and 80,000 people and sometimes you would get the same artist for two or three nights in a row. It was... It was this spectacular thing. I can remember in 1977, it would have been 77 or 78, you know, within a couple night period, there would have been the Eagles playing at the grandstand, which were the biggest name in rock and roll at that time. And then the next night, Hart would be playing there. And then the following night, Bob Dylan would be playing there. You know, and you would get some, 
you would get some weekends where you could get an Argonauts football game in the afternoon and a big rock and roll show at night. You know, it was it was spectacular. And then you would get six blue six or sometimes six or nine Blue Jays games during the exhibition. You know, that added to all of the whole entertainment package. And did you make a point of going to the to hear the music? I well, music has always been my, one of my very first loves. In fact, it is my very first love, and I have seen so many rock and roll shows; it's unbelievable. Can you remember any in particular that blew the top of your head off? Well, I guess that uh, the two that come to mind were as I've never seen Media Frenzy like uh, Bruce Spring. Although I'm not a big Bruce Springsteen fan, but I never saw a Media Frenzy like uh, back in the USA tour that Bruce Springsteen put on. He put on two nights at the Canadian National Exhibition, and that was such a big album. And there was such big promotion behind it. You know, I can remember that uh, Bruce is coming from the Harbour Castle Hilton and the media is following him everywhere he goes. And he's coming down Lakeshore Boulevard in this limousine and the fans are swarming him out on Lakeshore Boulevard and the show starts 45 minutes because they just can't physically get him from Lakeshore Boulevard back into Exhibition Place to do a show. So Urban Legend has it that the following night that, uh, that they took a carnival truck and they took over to the Harbor Castle Hilton, threw Bruce back in the sleeper, sent the limo as a decoy, and the carnival truck drove in behind and dropped him off into the show. Urban legend? Well, I, 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 I can't say that there's truth to that, but I've heard that story a number of times. I, I just don't have firsthand knowledge that act, that actually happened. Reliable sources? I think pretty good sources, yeah. So, anyways, that was exciting. I, I think out of the media frenzy, I would have to call that Born in the USA tour probably the biggest. You um, two did um, Pop Mart at the CNE for two nights, and that was an enormous show. Were you, you know, there? I, uh, yeah, I was there for both nights. I actually got a backsta- uh, backstage tour with. Uh, there was a guy from CPI, and his name was Brian. I became good friends with him, and he said, "Well." meet me backstage at two o'clock and I'll give you guys a tour of this. So we did. And uh, when we got there, Brian wasn't available. So actually it was U2's road manager that gave us the tour. And uh, he took us downstairs. We saw the lighting and the sound booths. And at that time, there was a satellite guy and U2 did a satellite of love with Lou Reed from his apartment every night in London. And how it worked was that Lou would start off the song via satellite and the band would pick up with him. And so now we're downstairs inside the satellite guy, the guy that does the pickup from London, England, and we turn on the thing and there's Lou making craft dinner in his apartment in London. It was great. And then he takes us up on stage and um, on stage they did uh, two songs. Uh, this is right after Rattle and Hum, I think. They did Angel of Harlem and they did one on the front of this teardrop stage that went way out into the crowd. So we went out there and I clicked on the microphone and I went dunk dunk and through exhibition the stadium went dunk dunk. And so then I grabbed the mic and I sang can't believe the news today and I could hear people in the crowd outside of the stadium going it's them, it's them. <laughs> Yeah, that was expe- that was spectacular. That U2 show, for me, that was the best show that I saw at the C&E. And I saw both nights of it. It was, you know, I've sort of been a U2 fan all the way along. And it was just the whole visual spectacle of what U2 produced during that tour was sensational. You know, and it was the height of their career. That was as big as U2 got was right then. You know, that was the end of their big stadium stage after Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum and before Octoon Baby. So it was pretty amazing time 
You know, and, and there was other performers that played there. Like, Sini was able to have this great attraction to draw some of the hottest names to that stage, you know, and that was a pretty hot ticket for performers to come. You know, I saw Elton John a couple times there. You know, and Elton John, every time during his career, he saw a different Elton John come on stage, which was kind of neat. You know, there's the flamboyant Elton John, and then there's the, you know, the less flamboyant and sort of the disco Elton John, and then... You know, there was a whole bunch of different Eltons that showed up every time. So that was some pretty big shows, but they drew some fantastically spectacular names, usually at the heights of their careers. And did you always, before you were coming to the CNE annually, because at this point you would be going there every year, right? From yes. 77 on. Mm -hmm. And would you uh, make a note of who was there and make sure that you were going to be seeing every, or did you just go every night? No, I didn't go every night, you know, because we were working. So I had to pick and choose what, what shows that I was going to go see. But I'm going to tell you, I saw a lot. I saw a lot of really, really good shows there. You know, Frank, I guess one of the big ones was uh, Frank Sinatra came and played the, played the band show one night. And that, was, and that was very, that was near the end of Frank. And it was a horrible, it was absolutely horrible, cold, rainy, drizzly night. And the tickets were unheard of expensive. I can't remember how much they were, but it was an astronomical price for what he had at that night. And it was pouring rain and Frank sang for 45 minutes. That was the end of him. And people were so, so disappointed. Wow. Yeah. You know, I guess uh, another one was uh, Alice Cooper. He had played there while we were there. And uh, a lot of Torontonians would remember this for sure, is that Alice is delayed for some reason or other. And the show is now well over an hour before it's going to start. And I don't remember if they canceled the show or if Alice is just really, is really, really late. Anyways, a riot breaks out. And there's people throwing chairs and there's fights and they, they're they throwing the people out into the midway and there's fights in the midway. And that actually changed, that Alice Cooper concert, to my understanding, is now the way that they change concerts now is that the chairs have to be tied together into rows because of what happened that night at the Alice Cooper concert. Then we also saw some, you know, we saw some of those... Back in the 80s, I'm going to tell you, wrestling was a really big thing. That Vince McMahon was a marketing, as far as I'm concerned, is an absolute marketing genius, maybe one of the best of our times. You know, and he was producing these WWF, you know, wrestling things, WrestleMania 1, 2, 3, and 4, and we had some incredibly huge, huge evenings, you know, after that grandstand was over because Vince was smart enough, you know, he would start those things at 7 o'clock, and then, you know, by 9 o'clock, he was wrapped up. And then you would have a fueled-up audience coming out of out of the wrestling match onto the midway, and those people would stay until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. It was it was spectacular. You know, I, I, I hold that as some of my most exciting times was after those wrestling matches, and I think we had three or four of them during my tenure at the CNE. And did the... Did the uh, Midway usually stay open till two? Well, that's one thing that we're pretty good at. We're we're going to stay open if there's people there. Wow! So two, but two o'clock would be about your mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, we had some great nights down there. That's for sure, especially after the wrestling matches. Tell me more about those great nights. Well, you know, it's just the, that's you know, there's something about this outdoor amusement business which is great, and it really particularly happened at the Canadian National Exhibition during some of those you know, those heyday years that they had where, you know, you could get 140, 160, 170,000 people to the grounds all in one day. 
and everybody's just having a great time and there'd be a great stadium show on and the midway would be packed and there's this excitement in the air. You know, there's, I can't describe it here properly. What excitement is there? You have to go and you have to live it to understand the excitement. I'm going to tell you there'd be the smell of cotton candy. Absolutely. And corn. Absolutely. Yeah. And just that, you know, it's a great setting down there because, you know, it's a hot August night and there's kind of the smell of the brine off the lake and, you know, it's just the sun shining. It's the end, kind of the end of summer and people are having a great time and the midway is packed and you're just, you're clicking on all cylinders. There's a certain amount of excitement to all of that. Well, not a certain amount. There's a lot of excitement to all of that. You know, I guess that's the reason why I sort of stuck around this business because I still get excited when that happens. And you were, and I believe you hit your biggest jackpot. Conklin hit his biggest jackpot September 3rd, 1989, where you brought in a million dollars from one day on the Midway. Talk about that. That's huge. Yeah, well, I'm gonna, when people ask me today, when, when was the best time for our Midway? I'm gonna, I always say 87, 88, and 89. You know, the Canadian National Exhibition was clicking on all cylinders. They were booking incredible acts. We still had Blue Jays baseball games down at Exhibition Place. We still had Argonaut baseball games. You know, they were going full throttle. And, you know, the Conklin Group had really matured by that point and really knew what the paying audience wanted. So, you know, Jim Conklin and his son Frank were buying enormously big rides and presenting them at the Canadian National Exhibition. We had, we had a whole bunch of people, seasoned veterans in and around our company that were very, very good from all parts of the land that really understood our business very well and did a very good job of what they did. And I guess the culmination of all of that was in 89 on the last weekend on the Sunday and Labor Day Monday, they presented the Rolling Stones in a full full stage, uh, full exhibition place concert, sold out two nights, and there was dignitaries from all over the world that came to this rock and roll extravaganza. And then the Rolling Stones, you know, they were uh, they were pretty big at that time, and we uh, grossed a million dollars in one day. We were the very first, for sure, we were the very first carnival in North America that had ever done that, and maybe even in the world at that point. You know, that was... We woke up from that the next day. We were all exhausted because it was an incredibly wild day down there. And it was people upon waves of people. And the concert would let out and there would be more waves of people. But we were the very first ones to do it. You know, we all, when we closed that night, we knew we did it. We knew that we got there. It just took us some time to validate all that. But we knew that we had got there. Did you celebrate? No, we went to work. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's Labor Day Monday, and then we had to move on to Springfield, Massachusetts after that, so we just went to work. So right out, when the X closes on Labor Day, you you literally, on the evening of Labor Day, you pack up. Yeah, we pack up, and we move to Springfield, Massachusetts, the Eastern States Exposition. It's sort of what we do. You know, we're pretty good at closing on Sundays and opening up Fridays somewhere else. Yeah. You know, we Still to this day, we play Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and we close on Sunday with a, not our entire show, but a good portion of our show closes on Sunday, and then we open up Friday at the Canadian National Exhibition. You know, and that's 1,733 miles. That's pretty far away. And how many trucks and how many people are you hauling between 
Saskatchewan and the CNE gates? Well, our, our show now comprises of the Canadian National Exhibition. of Our traveling corps is particularly around, say, around 450 people, very close to that. And then we would hire another five or 600 students or people to help us with operation, you know, help in our food operation or helping games or sell tickets. So our workforce any given day at the CNE would be in and around 800, 900 people with 450 of those people being the core that travels with our show everywhere that we go. And I think people would be surprised, of course, to know that there's a lot of professional types in the back office running things and make like yourself, who you have a, you, you have a title, it's vice president, and you're making sure things are working. But what the people we see and the people we remember are the characters. Yeah. The, the guys luring us in with the, the, the barkers. Mm-hmm. The talk. Yeah. Well, I, I guess that, you know, I, I, I got to hand it to Jim Conklin and the Conklin organization. You know, he's been, and further on, North American Midway, you know, we've really been trying to change the perception of what that North American carnival worker looks like. You know, I guess that when you say carnival worker, if the or if somebody says the word carny, that that conjures up sort of an image and type of stereotype amongst customers in in North America, but also in Toronto too. And I I'm going to say that, you know, we've really worked very very hard at trying to change the image of what that is, but it's going to take a generation for us to get there because people are just so used to those stereotypes, but not. Discounting is we've had a lot of those characters throughout, you know, throughout our throughout our career. You know, we've had lots of people have come work for us that you know got their start over at Coney Island and a lot of history over there. There's a gentleman by the name of John Tillyu. His father was uh, his father was the or maybe his grandfather was the developer of Steeplechase Park in Coney Island, and he lived and breathed the carnival all of his life. And he came as part of our operations, was with us for a long, long time. And he was a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, but also he is one of those great colorful type people that the minute you meet him, you just want to take him out for dinner because you want to hear all the stories that he's got. And, you know, we're kind of an obverse, adverse working condition. So, of course, there's lots of great stories that come out of this, you know, Stories like Bruce Springsteen coming to town and throwing him in the back of a of a trailer. Um, and then, of course, then we also had all the, for a period of time, we also had all those uh, sideshow people that were with us that, you know, that brought a certain amount of color to us. You know, there's the Zucchini family, which uh, was with Conklin Shows for a long, long time. And the Zucchinis were traditionally a circus and carnival family. In fact, he... Bruno Zucchini, I believe, was the very first human cannonball ever. And his family came with us and developed fun houses. And they had developed fun houses such as the Ghost Mansion and the Jungle Walk, which people would be familiar with. And they traveled with us wherever they went. But they've been in the carnival and the circus business all of their life. So they were sort of the colorful type human beings that, that came and worked for our show. But we drew, from across the world, we drew some of the best showman and some of the best skilled craftsmen that there were you know jim conklin hired uh, carl blitzer which was a master painter right straight out of germany to come and paint for us because we had so much painting to do you know for carousel rides and for scenery for rides and and that's the type of people that we brought all these together in one place and they became our core staff that traveled with us wherever we went and they were they were the part of the color of the show 
But after hours, they were fun? Always. I, I guess that that's part of the attraction that I sort of like to this business is that we worked hard and also we kind of played pretty hard too. Like, you know, our spare time, we didn't have a lot of it, but let me tell you, we took advantage of it. And I guess to a, a young man like myself, the attraction was, you know, I got to travel. I'm from Calgary at that time, which was kind of a smaller type city. So, you know, I get to travel the world and go to all these exotic places like Miami and Springfield and Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, they were paying me pretty good, so I had a few bucks in my pocket, and there was some girls, oh, and there was some girls, and there was girls. You know, and that was kind of, and there was people my age, you know, that were traveling out here, having a, a great time, you know, just providing a different type of entertainment. But then you also get to meet the human cannonball. Absolutely. Yeah, which was part of our traveling staff, or a master painter, or... Dainty Dora, 700, 600-pound woman, or, you know, who, or, or somebody from Coney Island that helped develop that whole experience, you know, who, the grandson. Who were they really? Who were they really when they took off their work, workday mask? Who were they? They were just regular people. You know, it was regular people with abnormally great life experiences. That's what they were. And they had so many stories. You know, they had great stories because they had seen so much. We, we're we're a very accepting society, really. We are. We're a very we. You just become one of us. All you have to do to become one of us is work hard, and if you can do that, then you become one of us very very quickly. If you can pull your own weight, and if you can help for the betterment of what we're trying to do, then all of a sudden you become one of us very very quickly just by doing those two things. And also, we're not judgmental people at all. We really like everybody. So it doesn't make any difference where you work or what you did. We just liked you if you were a hard worker. And so after, I'm going to tell you, after a very short period of time, everybody who worked blew up balloons in the back of the balloon joint to the guy who ran the Polar Express, do you want to go faster, to Frank Conklin that ran the show. We were just one big family that was traveling around trying to do all this. You know, and there was a certain camaraderie and a certain bond that, you know, you, you really would try to help out your fellow employee if they were having problems. And, you know, I'm going to tell you, if somebody was broken down on the side of the road, let's say that your truck was broke down or your house trailer was broke down, you were never alone because you know that there was 100 people behind you that were willing to stop by and give you a hand. That's the type of people we were. So we didn't hold those distinctions between people who were human oddities or the guy who ran the show. We were just kind of one big family trying to do one big thing. Traveling together. Traveling together. Trying to do all this. Special thanks to today's storyteller, Greg Scooter Keurig. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We're relying on listeners like you to tell your friends about these stories. You can also listen to and download this podcast as well as transcripts from our podcast website, ryerson.ca slash ce slash I was here. On our website, you'll find a portrait series of each storyteller. These photos were taken by the talented Toronto-based photographer Jessica Blaine-Smith. Time for the credits. Project Supervisor Darren Cooper. Audio Engineer and Producer Matt Rideout. Coordinator and producer, 
Melanie Santa Rosa. Our theme music was also created by Matt Rideout. Finally, a very special thank you to Programs for 50 Plus and Community Engagement at the G. Raymond Chang School of Continuing Education, Ryerson University, who supported us in our endeavor to give these storytellers a much-needed platform and audience. I'm Catherine Dunphy, and on behalf of all the storytellers, thanks for listening to I Was Here. In my phone, every time I remember one of my stories, I call them 100 bedtime carnival stories. You know what? That's a great idea. Yeah, and uh, so and um, they're pretty short, lots of them, but it would maybe maybe make a book or something. I don't you know. know what? That is a fabulous yeah. idea. But you you know, it's, better than, it's better than what he had, but also, um, yeah, every, and the idea of bite-sized pieces, everybody would like that. So I just, that's what I'm saying to you. I mean, just with that thing. And, and, and you're in a story.